I'm Asim Aslam, and this is GoTime. It's GoTime, a weekly podcast where we discuss interesting topics around the Go programming language, the community, and everything in between. If you currently write Go or aspire to, this is the show for you. All right, everybody, welcome back for another episode of Go Time. This is episode number eight. Uh, we have a special guest with us today, Asim Aslam, uh, and he's going to talk to us about the micro framework. And uh, we also have Brian Kettleson on the line, as always. Hello. And then we have the wonderful Carlisa Campos also on the line. Glad to be here. Hello. And let's give everybody, uh, have everybody give Asim a warm welcome. And if you could go ahead and give us a brief introduction, a little bit of history about yourself, and then we'll kind of roll into the whole micro framework. Sure. Um, so thanks for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Um, basically, my background is I've, I've spent uh, the last kind of 10 years in London doing various kind of sysadmin SRE engineering kind of roles. I, I worked at a startup, um, which later got acquired by Google. Uh, I spent a bit of time at Google learning how to build systems at scale, uh, which was really exciting to see from the inside. This was when Google Cloud was still actually in beta. Um, and then I, I went to work at Halo and, and helped build a global microservices platform back in 2013 when, uh, you know, it wasn't really much of a thing. I think Netflix was the only one talking about it. Um, and now I'm working on this thing called Micro. Um, you know, I, I realized everyone was really doing the same thing internally at companies. And, um, you know, it would be nice if there was a community project that was doing the same where we could all contribute and kind of learn and benefit from it. And basically do this thing of, you know, simplifying, building and managing distributed systems. And, you know, that's uh, really where I am at the moment, just kind of building that and hoping people will want to use it. So when I first saw Micro, I think the thing that impressed me most, and this was February of last year, it's been quite a while, but the thing that impressed me most was um, the design decisions that you've made seem to be, um, what's the word I'm trying to think of? It, it, it encapsulates almost everything you need to get the job done. And it's, it's more of a full framework than a toolkit, and to use uh, frequent Go terminology, whereas you know, like the Gorilla Toolkit is yeah. a bunch of things you can use to build websites, but Micro is is pretty relatively self-contained, and I, I really enjoy that. I think it's it's nice to have a strongly opinionated framework like that in the microservices. Thanks. Um, I mean, I, I guess the wording is always hard. You know, you can kind of go back and forth on on what it should be, but um, you know, learning from the experiences of building something within a company. Uh, the, you know, a library does not suffice. A toolkit does not suffice. We we essentially built platform as a service or microservices platform as a service for the company, and that meant providing everything to the developers, you know, who were our customers, and uh, and letting them kind of focus on what they need to focus on. So when I built this, I I really thought about you know what are the fundamental building blocks? How would you do it if you built it open source first? So it needs to be pluggable. Um, and you know, it, it slowly evolved. I mean, it started as just go micro, the, the kind of core project. And now it's 
this bigger thing and I'm kind of I'm calling it an ecosystem and trying to build it really further out and, and address every requirement. Um, but also kind of saying, look, it's pluggable. We offload the hard things to, you know, to the people and the tools that are really focused on those things. So service discovery, there's an interface for it. But if you want something that is consistent and distributed, you know, you can use console or etcd or, or anything like that. And it's the same for all the other kind of packages within there. Before we geek out on micro, Asam, it seems that you are working exclusively on micro. Is that true? And if so, what is the financial sustainability plan for the project and for yourself? Sure. So um, that's right. I'm working on it full time. I basically I quit my job uh, at Halo uh, over a year ago um, because I felt so strongly about this and I, and I wanted to build this. And um, at the time, I, I the plan was I, I was talking to some venture capitalists. So the plan was, hey, I'm going to raise this money, build this team and, and we're going to go off and do this, you know, the Silicon Valley way. And actually, we were, you know, we were in London. So, no, we couldn't do it that way. And um, uh, I ended up kind of going it alone. And uh, luckily, I had some savings. So I kept going. Um, and eventually, uh, a friend of mine who, you know, a friend of mine who was at Halo, who's now at Sixth, the car rental company, he went there to build a platform and he saw what I was doing. And um, and we kind of, uh, you know, worked out a deal. And uh, there, the, that company is essentially sponsoring the project so that I can continue to work on this full time, which is really great. Very cool. Yeah, I always love to hear projects that work that way where people get sponsored to work on them full time, because I know a lot of people get really passionate about their open source projects. And, and a lot of times they become abandonware when they move on to new places that no longer sponsor. It's it's really it's really tough. I, I think I, I got very, very lucky in the sense that, you know, this friend of mine who I'd worked with closely was going to this large enterprise company and, um, you know, he could see the value and he knew exactly what I was planning to do and was willing to kind of help out in that way. And And many, you know, people who build open source projects, very, very large open source projects don't get that same benefit. Um, and it's it's really tough to see that. And, and I know there's a lot of people kind of working on ways to uh, fix that, but we definitely need to do better work there as well. So let's talk about uh, adoption. Do you have any sense of the uh, the numbers or scale of companies that have deployed services with Micro? Um, so there's I set up a users page and there's about four companies listed there, um, a couple of which have gone to production. You can find that in the main repository in the wiki. Uh, there's maybe about five or six other companies uh, who did, you know, who, who kind of did a survey and said they would be uh, kind of on the way to production in the next three or four months. But um, I'm still like chasing them up to see if they want to, you know, publicly kind of name themselves and whatnot. So the, you know, the growth is slow and nice. There's maybe uh, I think the nice thing is, you know, there's this Slack where everyone joins and new companies or individuals from companies come along and and uh, kind of talk about their uses and, and people are using it without me even knowing. Uh, for some reason, uh, it's really taking off uh, in China, which is really, really nice to see. And someone even translated the entire blog into into Chinese. 
which is really cool. And um, here in London, I just met with a company called Kazoop, and they uh, have essentially, you know, they've posted the first job listing, including micro. Um, and and that's, you know, for me, that's really profound that someone thinks so much of it that they want to put it in a job listing and kind of say, hey, we're we're moving over to this framework, uh, and and here's what we're going to pay for someone to do it. So that's pretty cool. Are they looking for a developer with 10 years of experience? <laughs> no, they're they're looking for someone who knows Go and wants to build microservices and, and can kind of do this stuff. And it's, you know, I think the, the awesome thing about microservices in general is really, you know, it, these things are maybe less than a thousand lines of code. There's, it, it's very, you know, spe- it's very domain specific what you're building. So it doesn't require as much as you'd think to, to kind of build that stuff, which means people with, you know, six months experience, a year's experience could really do this stuff. How people learning Go for the first time could probably do this because what really matters is the API at the end of the day, the, you know, the interface to that application that you're communicating with, the, the code is irrelevant because you could rewrite that at any time in the future. Well, that brings up an interesting question. What do you feel philosophically is the, the delineation point between a microservice and something that's bigger than a microservice? Um, uh, that's a tough one. For me, what I've found is, um, it's, it's whatever I can kind of keep in my head and still feels fairly simple and having written a lot of go in the last three or four years and actually haven't built a microservices platform. I'd say a lot of the time it, it does fall into a, you know, thousand to 2000 lines of code kind of thing for go specifically now you know every language has a has a different kind of um syntax therefore it's going to you know come down to a certain number of lines um for go it just you know it feels naturally like that but it's you kind of you kind of know a lot of the time because this is a philosophy you just know from looking at the code if it takes longer than a, a week to do something then you know it's probably too big um and if you know, it takes you a lot of work to build that mental model as you're trying to change something, then you also know it's too big. That's an interesting measure. measure. Because I think, I'm thinking at the beginning when you're designing something, maybe that's what you mean, like at design time, at the creation time, how much you can hold it in your head. Because for me, as time goes by, more and more, and I'm working with a code base, I mean, two years that I work with a code base, I can hold a ton more than I, what I could in the first two months. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one of, um, I think, uh, I mean, I agree in that. The, the longer you go, the more you can kind of remember about it uh, and, and kind of model in your head. But at the same time, if you leave the project for a little while and come back, how long does it take you to kind of build that model again? Or um, for, for me, it's the case of, can I, mo- can I hold the entire model in my head? Uh, can I make changes to that model in my head in a very, very easy manner and then put it down in code very, very quickly? Um, a lot of the time I can, you know, y- you can kind of generally get a feel for when it's not working. I think people coming from a, an MVC background, you know, Rails and, and whatnot, um, you get used to the modularity. So you'd have code bases that are a million lines of code and you'd somehow figure out how to code in the modular space. But in the microservices world, I just think you kind of, you need to have full scope of the service itself. And um, 
a lot of the time, you know, we're we're hacking out services in the space of one or two days and shipping them to production, at least when I was at Halo. Um, and um, but I would say there's no right or wrong. You know, I, I think for everyone, it's a different thing. And um, you kind of you really have to go with what works for you. And that's what I like about the philosophy, because it's a lot about trade offs. So, you know, I think when a team comes together, there's certain, you know, they kind of figure how how they all work and what number of services work for them and what code bases, sizes of code bases work for them. I agree. I think you have, I think you have a very good point. I like that way of thinking. You might not even use it exclusively on your team, depending on what, how your team is made up, but you can definitely use it as a complement. Yeah. I, I think for me now that the question I'm, I'm thinking more about is, you know, we, we've seen all this kind of stuff play out in organizations. What I want to see is how this works in the open developer world. Um, you know, if we were to collaboratively build uh, entire products with microservices just as general developers, would that work? And at what scale could we actually achieve that? That's an interesting concept. I had, I had thought of microservices outside of something that looks like an enterprise. Uh, that's I, I think so. That's where I'm really going with this whole micro thing. Um, you know, I, I've done the organization thing for a long time. I think the tools that I build will be relevant to organizations, but at the same time, um, uh, I, I'm more interested in what we can collaboratively do as a developer community. So, I, you know, GitHub's a great example of us collaborating on libraries and and things like that. But what if we collaborate on you know, microservices. And, and so, you know, a person, two people write a microservice, then someone else consumes the API, then someone else builds another one. And we kind of keep going like that. What could we actually build? And if, if we do that, then we stop rebuilding the things that we used to build and we can start building new things, right? So we kind of shift software development forward entirely. And I think that's really intriguing to me. So I think, so you're imagining this more like the Linux landscape, right? Where there's lots of small tools that can, can be, can be combined easily. Nobody kind of rewrites each of those pieces every time, right? They just. Yeah, exactly. Like when's the last time someone uh, rewrote grep or LS or cat or, you know, something like that. It's, it's like once they're built, they're built. No, I think that's an interesting thought, you know, and, but uh, how does that look from uh, kind of the operations perspective, like who's responsible for all of those? Are these microservices that are running out somewhere that you you leverage or are these microservices that you're downloading these versions of and installing within your own infrastructure? How's that look? So, so I, I think, um, so, say, so say, you know, all of us here on the call, we were all collaborating on some project. Now, how would we do it, right? If we're building a side project, um, a lot of the time people will go find some hosting and start running some stuff there. But what if we kind of, what if we could string together our, you know, disparate um, digital ocean kind of resources, create a network and then run microservices in there collectively? Um, that's what I'm really thinking. I think it'd be kind of a shared responsibility between the people actually contributing to the network itself. And then, I, I, you know, I, I built, I've, I've built platform as a service for a very long time. So I think the the part of automation really plays in. And so you have to build, you know, self-healing um, automated systems that can kind of deal with this sort of failure. I mean, we're we're talking about distributed systems, right? So they have to be fault tolerant. So I think 
that kind of plays into it. And it's, um, it's really fun and kind of interesting when you get to a point where you bootstrap the platform and then everything is written as a service and even services that manage the, the kind of the infrastructure are, uh, are microservices. So I think you can kind of get to a place where no individual, no actual human being is managing any of it. It's actually completely automated. You've got big dreams. I have very big dreams, but I also have, um, you know, the, the time to do it and, and that's the, the luxury of time. So that's quite nice. So from a technical perspective, one of the things I, I appreciate about the micro framework, <clears throat> excuse me, is that you can, um, you can interact with the framework from multiple different uh, media, for example, the command line tool, the bot, uh, the API itself, uh, designing that, uh, what went into that? How did you, how did you design the services in a way that made it really easy to interact from so many different media? So I, I sort of cheated a little in that, you know, um, at Halo we had a lot of these things. Uh, you know, we we had we had the API that would convert HTTP to RPC. We we had um, you know web applications as microservices. We had Hubot in HipChat, which is where I kind of got the idea for the bot. And then we also had a shell or or a CLI. And so I, I just took all those ideas and I, and I kind of knew that, you know, when you're building this stuff, you need to be able to interact with it. And you also need to be able to interact with it from a legacy standpoint and just a usability standpoint of, hey, if I have a CLI, it's really easy for me to see what's going on and query things. If I have an API that serves HTTP, it makes it very simple to kind of, you know, talk to these things via a browser or curl or anything else. Um, and when you're serving, you know, public-facing APIs, uh, obviously everyone wants uh, REST or, or something similar. In the future, I think uh, I want everything to move to RPC, uh, and I think that's the really the dream of gRPC as well. I think they're talking about mobile first and doing that, but um, it was just that it, it, it didn't all happen at once either. You know, it, it started with the command line, then it was the API, then it was the web UI, and, and so on and so forth. Um, and, and that's the thing to remember with any of any of this kind of development, right? It's it's a, it's a slow kind of progressive thing. Um, you're not going to have everything figured out, but it's also a layered architecture in the sense that you build exactly what you need at first, and then rather than conflating that core thing, you build around it and continue to build around it and and on top of it. And now backing up a little um, about what the framework actually is, I I don't think we've actually kind of stepped through kind of what the framework does um like what it's abstracting from you and kind of we talked about pluggable components but we we should probably take a second to talk about what those pieces are especially for people who might not be familiar with kind of all the pieces of of, of part of a distributed system sure so um that that's a good point thanks for raising that so i'll, I'll start with um Micro, the, the, the kind of first thing, it's a toolkit, you know, that, that kind of makes it easier to, to build and manage microservices. At the core, there's this uh, library called GoMicro, which is a pluggable RPC uh, framework. And the idea is that that core library provides you the fundamentals for, for building microservices. So when you think about microservices, it's this, you know, uh, service-oriented architecture kind of thing, and you think, what do I need there? I need 
Um, I need some sort of uh, communication. I need message encoding. Communication might actually be synchronous and asynchronous. Um, I need to be able to serve requests. I need to be able to make requests. Uh, and so those things are really addressed at the core and nothing else. It only addresses those fundamentals because the other things that you think about off monitoring, uh, distribute tracing and things like those, you, you don't necessarily need those to, to just build microservices. So that was really the, the focus of the course of helping you build microservices. Then the kind of outer layer, the toolkit, uh, as Brian mentioned, you know, it's the entry points. There's a CLI, an API, um, there's a web UI, there's a, there's a sidecar so that provides a HTTP interface uh, that has all the features of Go Micro. So if you want to write stuff not in Go, like if you want to write in Python, Ruby, JavaScript, whatever, you can just interact with the HTTP interface and kind of use it that way. It's, it, it's similar to... Um, so Netflix has something called Prana, which is their sidecar. Uh, Buoyant has something called Linkerd. Um, so these are kind of prominent. But yeah, the idea is really, you know, providing you the fundamentals for, for actually writing microservices. Um, I think many people are currently addressing, um, you know, that kind of runtime aspect. They're saying, here's how you run microservices. Here's the tools that you need in the infrastructure side. Um, but I think people are still really struggling with, well, how do I actually write microservices? Like, where are the tools for those? And I think there's there's very few tools actually around for that. I know Netflix has a very, very good suite of tools uh, to do it in Java, but we were sort of missing these tools in Go. And uh, credit to Peter Borgen, who, you know, a year uh, or more ago, um, started work on GoKit, uh, and around the same time, I, I started work on uh, Go Micro as well. And so there's some tools now kind of surfacing to to help with this. But you know, I think we're really focusing on the development side, and and uh, companies at large at the moment are are you know other companies are focusing on how do we how do we run them. Okay, so that actually brings up a valid point, and we have some people in the Slack channel who are kind of asking the same thing. How would you compare? and contrast kind of micro versus go kit like do you see them targeting different groups of people the same um i, I think you know I, I think the community at large is the same right it's people who want to write stuff with go um uh, but at the same time it's, it's this it's the thing of like uh, you have a preference to the way in which you're going to build applications so everyone's going to kind of you know look at libraries and services and things and go oh, i like this or i don't like this so you know, in the days of like, should I pick MySQL or Postgres? It's the same kind of thing of like, should I pick this library or that one? Um, and I think uh, GoKit, you know, it is um, from what I see the tagline, it's you know a standard library for for microservices or, or distributed systems, and it's addressing quite a lot of uh, very, very solid things and has huge kind of OSS uh, contributions going on at the moment. So that's really uh, great. Um, from the micro side. You know, it's addressing the same kind of things, the fundamentals. But for me, I'm building based on my experiences. I'm building the tools that I didn't really see in the ecosystem, and and I like um, I like very simple uh, interfaces. I like a low barrier to entry. I don't want to care about the details when I'm actually writing services. I want very little boilerplate, um, and I need the entire toolkit. I need like I need I want everything. You know, when it comes to write, running writing microservices. And and so I think they, they kind of differ uh, a little bit and you have to 
you know, I, I think everyone has to look at them themselves and kind of see where the benefits are for them because there are lots of people using GoKit. You know, they really like it. They like those abstractions and, and that is, you know, a really great thing. I think choice is very, very important. Yeah, and I think you bring up a valid point too. Um, Brian and I had kind of a similar um, situation at a prior employer that both of us worked at, the one we actually met at. Um, so you have a lot of people who are interested in building these distributed um, frameworks and making the communication happen and making things fault tolerant and service discovery. And then you have a lot of people who just work on business related features. So at least from my understanding of the two um, projects, it seems like yours more targets uh, being able to just write the service and not have to think about all the bits that make the services communicate between each other and allow you to just kind of focus on the business logic. Um, I mean, so you're, you're, you're dead on, you're dead on. This was the really, um, when we built the platform at Halo, the, the, the thing that everyone would say and, and the goal from the entire kind of platform team and those who are building this thing was um, we don't want anyone to have to think about distributed systems. Uh, we want them to be able to leverage them, but you know, everyone is, I mean, we're, we're building a business, right? And, and we need to write services for the business. And we don't really care about that kind of other stuff. And in the same way here, micro, that's the goal. Like, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to have to care about all those details. Why should I? Like, I just want to write software. I, I want to build my services. And even then, like, I, I think about, you know, as I'm building this stuff, I'm thinking about, like, maybe even these things, some of these things are too low level. Like, maybe we need to find a way to go higher up. And I think um, over time we will, you know, I, I think at the moment it's the thing of, you know, when you're writing code, uh, microservices code, you, you end up kind of focusing on, well, I'm going to call this service and I'm going to call this service and I'm going to take this data and I'm going to transform it and return it. And at a certain point you think, well, what I really care about is like the information. I don't really care where it is, but I need, you know, it's kind of like, Hey, give me all the geolocation information for this user. I don't care how many different services it's in. Just give it to me, and then I'll like you know I'll, I'll gather this and I'll transform it and pass it back to the user. And it's kind of uh, if you think about um, what Jeff Dean and Sanjay Gamawat did with kind of MapReduce at Google in the early days, right? It, it's the same thing. It's like reducing the amount of work you have to do to get that data you really care about. So I think that's where we're going. Yeah. And I'm so I've looked through the docs a couple of times. Unfortunately, I haven't actually built anything with micro, but I mean, it, it seemed pretty inclusive. Like I liked the idea that you could, you could change out your messaging brokers. You could change out your service discovery mechanisms. And, you know, these are all pain points, you know, many of us who have built distributed systems have suffered through, you know, like, oh, well, I like, you know, zookeeper for this, but hate it for something else. And, you know, you kind of go through these iterations where you switch out. And it, it's nice to just be able to swap those components out and try different things. And, you know, maybe maybe people on your team know how to support, you know, active MQ or something versus zero MQ and things like that. Yeah, I, I think that was that was totally the point. You know, I, the, the first I think the first reason was, um, you know, when we built the stuff at Halo, we kind of baked everything in because we're on a on a kind of a deadline. And then when we thought about open sourcing it, we realized that everything is, you know, kind of hard coded in a way that it makes it difficult to 
strip it all out. And and doing any kind of local development meant you had to run 10 different things and all their dependencies to make it work. And when I started to build this stuff, uh, I knew that, you know, I wanted to be pluggable. Um, I, I wanted uh, to minimize the number of dependencies that you needed to get started. Uh, and on on your point, you know, everyone has different skills. Everyone um, likes different tools. Uh, I think it's important to be able to support that while at the same time, you know, kind of using the same way of building software. And then in the future, you know, in five years from now, when we're using different kind of backend technologies, then you want to be able to swap those out as well. The worst thing is when, you know, you've kind of built all these things and you're dependent upon you know, some service, and, and then you have to go rewrite your code everywhere to make it happen. And, and with micro, the idea is all you have to do is change the plugin, switch out on the command line, and that's it. You know, you're kind of done and, and you've swapped out this entire thing. Um, and um, yeah, I, you know, I was really thoughtful about it. And, and hopefully, my hope is that other people kind of respond to this and um, and they write plugins as well, right? So I, I hope to see some stuff contributed from the community. So one of our listeners has a question, and it, it almost relates to that. Uh, in terms of your plugins, how many of those can be used as components in other projects that maybe aren't even microservice related? Could you reuse the log package or service discovery or something like that in, a, in an unrelated project? You could, you could totally do that. You know, they're all kind of independent packages. Um, I think uh, so. So each package can kind of be used independently. There's only the the thing of kind of at the top level within Go Micro, we have this reference to a service that combines everything. But for the most part, if you want to use the individual things, you can. And I think that's you know great benefit there as well. Um, I, I I've actually seen some people uh, you know kind of start to use pieces of the Go platform, which is the higher level tooling. Um, and, and, you know, they're using the log package or the metrics package or the key value stuff. It's pretty cool. Great. Before we move on, I wanted to ask you, Asam, where can people find out more and how to get started? Are there tutorials? Where can they go to ask questions? Do you have a channel here on, on Go for Slack? If, in other words, tell us how people can get started and get proficient using micro. Sure. Sure. Thanks for asking. Um, so I have, uh, you can go to the website micro.mu uh, and that'll kind of take you to where you need to go. So there's a, there's a blog which has, you know, the introduction, it has a getting started guide on how to write uh, Go microservices. Um, you can go to the, the GitHub repository and there's a wiki and there's documents in every single kind of package that explains how things work. Um, and, and each of them in the readme, you know, have a kind of getting started kind of guide and, and how to start with that. And we also have uh, a Slack channel dedicated to kind of uh, micro and uh, microservices and distributed systems in general. So everyone can kind of self-invite and, and come join that and, and talk about this stuff. Um, the reason I didn't actually set up a... One in, in the Gopher channel was because I knew that longer term, this wasn't going to be solely Go focused. Um, uh, we're actually on the cusp of kind of having multi-language support. So Six and, and some other companies have developed libraries in Java, Scala. Uh, someone else is independently working on Rust, and I'm hoping for a JavaScript implementation as well. So the hope is we open source these and, and we actually become 
uh, a multi-language community and the focus is just, you know, on building microservices. Thank oh, that's you. great. So um, I, I think we have probably like 15, 20 minutes left. So one of the things we like to do with our guests is just kind of have like a fireside chat where we kind of talk about um, interesting kind of projects and news and other things that kind of uh, you have an interest in. And I know serverless is a big thing. And we kind of touched a little bit on that um, earlier. Worst um, name ever. <laughs> ever. I totally agree. Is, is it worse than the cloud? <laughs> yes, it's far worse than the cloud. At least with the cloud, you know, you've got some concept that there's something somewhere. Serverless is just, somebody should be shot for coming up with that one. I'm sorry. Yes, it's completely <laughs> misleading. Uh, this, is, this is where we're going to, I mean, so on the term, yeah, it's kind of the term sucks a little bit. Um, I think you have to look beyond the name and the hype and actually see what the real value is there, like what they're saying to you. And and what they're really saying to you is, hey, this is the second coming of platform as a service where you don't have to deal with infrastructure. And also things will only run when they need to be run. So the cost is like order of magnitudes less. Is there a shorter name for that? Serverless. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> See, I can totally get behind your description of it, but serverless just sounds yeah. so ridiculous. No, I, I guess the, the problem is you can't, you can't pick the naming, right? Once, once it takes off, it takes off. I mean, you remember big data and uh, you remember cloud and you remember DevOps and, and even microservices. Like it just, it happens and then it becomes the word and then there's nothing you can do. <laughs> so, Asim, you seem to be very proficient with uh, the concept of serverless. Why don't you tell everybody what it is? Because when we interviewed Travis Reader, I had to actually go and look it up. And I didn't feel that I felt that I either wasn't getting it or I didn't see the big deal because there is a server involved somewhere in the diagram between sure. the user and you in, in your, your, your codes. So what is it about? So please tell us. Sure. So from, from what I gather, um, the idea is that it's really about event-driven programming and um, there is no management of servers or anything at all involved and, and you don't have to manage anything yourself. You basically write snippets of code which look like you know, functions and um, you set them up and you kind of configure them along with an API gateway and the API gateway essentially triggers your function or, or the call to the API gateway triggers your function based on, you know, something that's happening there. Uh, and then your function executes, you know, it spins up, a, a container spins up, uh, the request is passed off to your function, it executes, the container goes away and that's really the end of it and, and the idea is you don't like you personally don't have to run anything um it's an automated system uh, and it kind of switches the programming model uh, a little bit in the sense that you're focused on uh, event driven uh, event driven programming more so than anything else um and, and you can kind of imagine where this would work for analytics and consuming certain kinds of data um, but people are also using it for other things like, so if you, if you recall, um, if, if we think about the, you know, you have side projects and you're running your own digital ocean node or something like that. And you're spending $20 a month on this. Um, and you're only running a bunch of websites. 
And um, they were showing kind of the cost breakdown and, and they were saying that, you know, you could reduce the cost order, orders of magnitude uh, by using this kind of serverless model so that it's, you know, your container or whatever is your code is only executed when someone actually calls it. Otherwise, there's nothing running in the interim. And that's really the big thing about it. There, there is, you know, there's nothing running. It only runs when something calls it. Um, it's, I'm not, I'm not sure if I see it, uh, working at scale yet. I mean, in terms of within organizations, um, as a full-time thing for their entire code base, I'm, I'm yet to see kind of, um, a way of doing that because I think when you're writing, you know, function, essentially functions, uh, uh, for your code, you could end up in a spaghetti mess. And, um, I think. You know, the frameworks are emerging to kind of make this a little bit simpler, but, you know, it looks interesting so far. So I'm thinking, it sounds to me from reading and from what you're saying, that I should be thinking about serverless, the serverless approach as uh, microservices, but instead of a full-blown microservice, an API or, or an app, I have a function. So I'm, I need to think about, okay, with microservices, I would think, how would I split, split my, my application into microservices? So now I have to think about how do I, how do I extract portions of my, my code and into functions that I can then run in a, with a serverless approach? Yeah, I mean, I, the, I think the goal is, or, or the thing you should really think about is it's event-driven architectures. Um, I think what they're saying is everything is asynchronous. And so you're essentially building pipelines where things are triggered based on events. Um, and the only synchronous action you may have is on the API side when some outside user is actually calling uh, through an API gateway uh, and then, you know, the pipeline kind of executes. And it, it is a, um, even for me personally, it's a shift in, in thinking in the way of building systems. I find that a lot of uh, front-end engineers are very perceptive to this just because they come from a JavaScript world where it is uh, event-driven programming. Uh, and so I think for the rest of us, we have a, you know, a lot to learn, but there's uh, the thing to, I think the thing to take away is to kind of look beyond the hype, see that there is some value there. Um, I, uh, I want to say that maybe 70 to 80% of front-end projects and data pipelines will be in this kind of model in the next five to six years, just because of, the sheer value uh, from it, um, but it, it's going to be a little while, you know, like Amazon have their own version of this. Google has their own version. Uh, IBM has their own version. Um, so we kind of, we need a way to be able to work across all of these things. So do you see this as um, kind of a major shift in development? Like most development would be done this way or do you see this more for for almost rapid prototyping people trying to to get things going almost from the business perspective like you need to get this live um i i think um it it's it's hard to say i mean i, I think initially is prototyping right um it it's like it is the way most kind of new trends come about or or new systems appear and it's the thing of like firstly use it for your side projects and then when you're doing a new project at your company you kind of use it then and then some other companies see these successes 
and they decide to build everything using it or they move to it. So we'll see some cases where people move their entire architectures over to it. Um, and in other cases where it is you know, primarily focused on front end or the API or data analytics, uh, and we'll have um, you know, kind of a split off from, from other kind of ways of developing software. Uh, I, I, can't, I can't actually say whether it will be the dominant form of you know, how to build software because um, I, you know, I, I like being able to write a certain amount of code. I like being, being able to write code a certain way. But I think for a lot of use cases, it will be quite useful. What do you know of products that are available to drive the serverless application developments for Go developers or developers in general? Um, I think the one, the first one that comes to mind is just, you know, serverless.com. Uh, that serverless project is the one that's been around uh, the longest, it seems. It started out as a project called JAWS, uh, and now it's kind of taken off. It has over 8,000 stars on GitHub. Uh, the other one is Apex, um, uh, which seems to be doing really well as, uh, and has multi-language support uh, along with Go. Um, and, um, and even, uh, and so even IBM open sourced their actual serverless, um, kind of project, it's called open whisk. You can find it on GitHub and that will kind of give you a breakdown of, you know, how this stuff kind of works and you could even spin it up yourself. Thank you. That was, that's a great list. It seems it's, I mean, there's, there's a lot of people moving on this very fast. There's a lot of big companies moving on it very fast. I mean, if you look at it, you know, AWS has Lambda, Google has Functions, IBM, uh, IBM has OpenWhisk. So you can see them all very, very quickly getting involved in this because they see the value in it. Yeah, I think it's definitely something I wanna, I wanna keep my eye on because it, I have my reservations about it. I think there's ideas of it that I think are, are really cool. And I think there's, there's, I have some open-ended questions just from kind of experience and you know, how, how situations are handled in, in the event, like the, you don't get the golden path, right? Everything doesn't work. Like how do you debug something like that? Um, but yeah, I mean, I, people way smarter than me are working on these things. So I'm interested to see how it progresses. So, um, I do want to kind of, uh, I think we're, we're getting close to time. So one thing I do want to touch on, um, before we close out the show is the one seven beta release. I'd like to, if we have just a couple of minutes to kind of just chat about some of the stuff that came as part of that and encourage people to uh, download the beta and start uh, compiling their code against it and submitting bug reports, especially with the SSA compiler that's now in it. Let's do it. All right. So one of, one of the really interesting things I saw in there was the idea of subtests and sub benchmarks with the, the same uh, set up and tear down for those uh, testing packages. That's really nice because um, having to write that set up and tear down code over and over is annoying. And being able to get that um, broken out is is really nice in testing. I like that one. Yeah, I think that the hierarchical tests and the benchmarks are that way too. Um, I think that's going to be really cool. Um, they did some performance improvements. Um, uh, I think mostly related to the strings and uh, string conversion packages, um, crypto packages, the SSA, I think, is where most of it's coming along. I think they said that most of that stuff should work out. But if you see like random errors in your code or things that don't work the way you'd expect them to, 
um, with the compiler, there actually is a SSA uh, equals zero flag that you can pass into the compiler to get the old non-SSA backend and then submit an issue. But I think, go ahead. I was just going to say, we forgot the most important piece of Go 1.7, which is the context package making it into standard live. I don't think there's any, any bigger news than that. Are you leveraging that SM inside micro, the context package? Uh, yeah, I am actually. I, I, I think it. it's kind of become a staple among um, building services. At first, I didn't really understand it. And then over time, it started to make more and more sense. Um, and so it's, I, I think it makes a lot of sense that it's now par- part of the standard library. Yeah, well, Brian and I are both really excited about seeing that come in. We've been, we've been using that for a while. And one of the things that, and I have to admit, I haven't looked at this too deeply. I actually only saw it in the release notes. Um, is there's, it looks like there's HTTP tracing associated with that context now. And I'm kind of interested to see how that works. So I read up on that this morning. It's kind of interesting because it allows you to attach functions to events in an HTTP client. So if you were making a client request out to a site, uh, you can have a function get fired when DNS is resolved, for example. And that allows you to do some really nice debugging uh, in terms of you know the where your performance hits are in your HTTP client, or help you figure out what issues you're running into in production. So it looks to be very useful for debugging and tracking down problems with HTTP connections. So this is more callback style. Correct event event. I don't use the word callback. We're we're Go programmers. So this is uh, <laughs> this is uh, it's all events that you can tap into. I think you're tainted from your dislike of Node. <laughs> oh my God, don't get me started. This is a family show, Eric. <laughs> and Brian got really mad at me one time because what was it? Like uh, Jason Lint or so- something that I had him install as a command line tool and it came with Node. And like, he's like, are you serious? You're fired. You're fired. <laughs> <laughs> You made me put Node.js on my computer. (laughs) I have to, I mean, I I somewhat, I tentatively somewhat agree with Brian just a little bit from from like the, you know, use of it. But maybe it's a necessary evil now. Yeah, I haven't bought into it from a development perspective. I know people have their reasons for liking it and I've, I've always try to be receptive to you know everybody uses what they feel comfortable with so I, I try not to hate but it's it's definitely not um a platform or framework that i've used much outside of like it came with something so anything else anybody wants to talk about before we close out the show because i think we're getting pretty close on time and uh also asim if there's anything else that you would like to close with about micro or serverless before we kind of wrap up the show. No, I, I mean, we, we can drop in some other topics that are on the list. Uh, I, I think the interesting one was CoreOS just came out with a distributed storage system, which would be kind of cool to talk about quickly. Yeah, uh, Taurus, right? Yeah. I'm yeah, really this is, super excited this is about that one. What do you think, Brian? I'm crazy excited about it. One of the biggest problems I've always had with um, any of the orchestration platforms, Kubernetes, Mesos, whatever, is storage. What do you do with storage when you've got 
a relatively small cluster and you don't have, you know, some sort of block storage, you know, especially uh, as a enterprise where you might not be running in a cloud, but you still need that distributive storage that each of your pods or each of your containers can get to. So this I think is going to be huge. I, I, it's one of the things I'm most excited about just in the last two years in the container space. It's going to make a huge difference. Yeah. I'm, I'm quite, I'm excited to see them actually tackle this. Uh, I know, you know, it's going to be um, a hard one to get right, but having seen the work that they've done on etcd, uh, you know, I believe they'll be able to do it. And in time with uh, people who have that kind of experience, it's going to be really good. Um, as someone mentioned, you know, the, the Hacker News comments weren't very kind. I think we, we all kind of, we need to be optimists and we need to be supportive. And I think this is really good for the entire kind of tech community as a whole. Um, I, and I think everyone just, you know, everyone's a little bit like, ah, oh, I wanted to write a distributed storage system. Like, why do they have to write it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, anytime something new like that comes out, people, you know, uh, and CoreOS kind of gets gets a brunt of it too, right? Because they're they're trying to innovate and they're trying to do things differently. And I think they catch some slack for it too. You know, the whole rocket thing, and you know, many of these things are are fantastic and. They have some really smart people working for them. It's like every year they're scooping up more people. You're like, oh, this person's doing something cool. And it's like, yep, CoreOS just grabbed them. <laughs> but I'm interested to see how it comes along. And I think that as people start to play with it, I think that they'll, they'll start to see kind of its merits. I want to mention something super quickly. Uh, sure. Tom Mayaroto was asking for a review on the reviews channel on Govern Slack of this tool that he just paid. It's a, it's a young project called Disk FG. And it's a tool for um, the description says a distributed serverless configuration tool for using AWS services. Uh, I'm not going to go over it, but he has a why yet another one section on his README, which is actually quite so well documented and you can read there why the reasoning for this tool and maybe people can help him review it it's open source competition is good that's why yeah <laughs> <laughs> all right did anybody else have anything they want to touch on any closing notes about uh micro especially because that's definitely one of the most exciting things we've talked about here um so i'll just say you know Thanks for having me on the show and being able to talk about this. Please do try Micro if you're interested in building microservices. Um, come join the Slack and kind of talk about it. Uh, and I'm looking for people to help contribute uh, uh, to the OSS kind of project. If you're interested in building the higher level tools in the Go platform, or if you want to contribute plugins, let me know. Right now, we're happy to have you on the show. Thanks. And. Uh... One of the things we like to do, too, is we like to kind of briefly kind of roundtable it and uh, go around and thank an open source project we are kind of thankful for just because we need to, I think we all need to do a better job showing support and love to open source projects. And today you get to go show some love to Micro by pull requests, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> That's a good way to go. All right, I'll, I'll start off with my free software Friday. Thank you. Um, mine's actually bigger than a single open source project. I'd like to thank CoreOS uh, for innovating and creating really unique solutions. Um, CoreOS Linux specifically is, is probably one of the most amazing Linux distributions I've ever played with, and I, I truly enjoy using it every time I touch it. 
um, NCD and all of the other projects that they do are fantastic. And their business model. Panel, Rocket, yeah. Yeah, their business model is, is really solid uh, in terms of uh, open source. So I appreciate the company and the philosophy behind the company in terms of OSS. How about you, Carlicia? Yeah. Well, today we talked about stateless computing, and my pick is a state management for Go, a tool for Go backend applications. And it's a tool by Luis Vinicius. It's called GoDux. It's also a young project, but um, it seems promising. So I would definitely use it if I, was, if I needed to uh, manage states. That's great. Uh, I assume you can't cheat. You cannot say micro. You got to use anybody but micro. It's good. I have one. Uh, this is a bit of a throwback. So this is uh, thanks to PostFix, the SMTP nice. server. Um, back in the day when I was a sysadmin, we used to do bulk emails. Um, we were sending, you know, half a million emails an hour. Uh, and I kind of managed upwards of 100 instances of PostFix, and it made it really easy to kind of configure and manage SMTP. So I'm really grateful for that piece of software because it meant I didn't have to use SendMail. And if anyone has used SendMail, you know how painful that is. SendMail never. <laughs> so for me, I haven't really been using anything uh, new that I haven't already mentioned um, except VLC. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give shout out to VLC because that, that is making my life easier. I definitely would not want to write VLC. I don't think I'm quite qualified for that either. <laughs> All right, so I think we made it all the way around. Definitely want to congratulate the panel and I definitely Asim for coming on the show and talking to us about micro and serverless and time got away really fast. Like I wish we had more time to talk about this. Um, we will definitely link to the project and the Slack and uh, anywhere else we can find micro on the interwebs for everybody in the show notes. Um, they should be posted on Twitter, if not now. Uh, in a little bit, they'll be on Twitter for the live listeners and in the Slack channel. Um, come find us on Twitter at GoTimeFM. Uh, you can go to GoTime.FM to subscribe. And I think the first episode is there. We'll have more episodes coming soon. And I think that's it. Am I missing anything, everybody? No? You got it. I think you did well. All right. That was great. Thanks, everybody. All right. Thanks, everybody. This was fun. Thanks. Thanks, guys. 